0: The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have changed and evolved since it was originally recorded.
1: We know media is manipulated or generated. Should we care? And if we care, you know, we need to also identify how it was created and provide those indicators as feedback. It'd be great if everybody had a tool for this. It'd be great if every news organization had a tool. Some of it's education. This is what to look for. Other kinds, I mean, for example, there's research going on at at Berkeley, I believe there's also at Albany, and uh, University of Buffalo, looking at speech as well as muscle movement. There are some motions that defy the laws of physics. (laughs) That's a problem.
0: The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, I get to speak with Dr. Neil Johnson, who has over 25 years' expertise in multimedia forensics and analysis. He has earned credibility as a trusted advisor and a mentor across multiple agencies supporting national security, intelligence, defense, and law enforcement. He joined the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in 2021 to become an NIU faculty member. His role as a science and engineering technical advisor supporting the DARPA Media Forensics and Semantic Forensics programs driven by his passion for digital forensics and connecting agencies with capabilities to help accomplish their mission objectives. Formerly an academic, he was a research scientist and associate director of the Center for Secure Information System at George Mason University. He also taught at the George Washington University. Following the attacks of 9-11, Dr. Johnson left academia to apply his research to combating terrorism and supporting national security. He established and ran a multimedia DOD forensics lab as the lead analyst and researcher and supported numerous agencies receiving commendations and awards for his work. Dr. Neil Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the Intelligence Jumpstart today. Welcome. Glad to be here. So to kick things off, you have extensive experience with media forensics. And I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about what media forensics is and then how you got started in that field.
1: Specifically, it's around uh, multimedia forensics, uh, multimedia analysis, image, video, audio, text, network traffic, signals, uh, associated media, and social media distribution of that kind of data as well. So it's a pretty broad range of uh, how data is represented and, and conveyed. I had experience analyzing all different aspects of that. I got started in media forensics many years ago when exploring uh, steganography and steganalysis and my love of cryptography and multimedia and image processing, multimedia creation, audio, music, and all that, and combining the two. And that's where I got my interest in in steganography in the early mid-90s and started to explore how data was being hidden and conveyed in, in different types of media and discovering artifacts that can be used to detect uh, the presence of, of hidden information. And, and In fact, at the time, there other researchers around the world working on this type of problem. And over the years, it, it became no accident that those of us that were involved in examining and analyzing steganography became practitioners or researchers in multimedia analysis research because in steganography, we're looking for subtle manipulations Uh, modifications, and signatures that are below the human senses to determine whether something is present or not. And when it comes to forensics, we're also looking for presence of information or data manipulations or, or validating information that is more intrusive than what we would see in steganography, but also just as applicable.
0: It's really cool what we can accomplish today. Obviously, we're here to talk about deepfakes, and uh-huh. synthetic media, but can you describe a little bit about? I I think you've kind of had to be living under a rock at this point if you don't know what deep fakes are. But if we can go into kind of the technical aspects of how deep fakes are created, that would be useful.
1: Sure. There there are various types of of deep fakes. What is considered deep fakes? Now, I want to differentiate a little bit about the term deep fake versus synthetic. Media or synthetically altered media. Okay. Generically, in the press, those are everything is known as as deep fake. In fact, some things that we would call cheap fakes, <laughs> uh, simple Photoshop or speeding up or slowing down video, in the press are often referred to as deep fakes because it's a sexy term. It gets right. people's imagination and so on. A deep fake, the term specifically relates to an algorithm that was developed. I believe in 2017, that is a specific type of face swap, where uh, a face of one person replaces a face of another person, and then the edges are, are blended, and this is done through a, a type of, of machine learning, to give a better blending of the face and attributes, where we can take a, a model based on a variety of angles of a face, and replace an actor with another actor, and that's why we see you know, Nicholas Cage showing up in so many movies he was never in. Right. His face is very common because he's he's has great expressions and great angles. And so people have taken his face and replaced uh, other actors with that. And that was the genesis of deep fake. What has happened since 2017 are other advances in media generation. Modifying... Media and creating fakes is nothing new. Photoshop or image processing techniques, photo techniques have been around for for many years where people would, would swap faces or create persona images of people that didn't exist in a place or create faces that were augmented from one person to another synthesis. Machine learning has given techniques to help automate this process based on taking a model of these individuals and creating output. There are techniques for fully synthetic media, which if you take a look at this person does not exist.com, all those faces are generated through GANs, a generative adversarial network, which takes models of, of real people and tries to understand and learn what a face looks like. And then through a random generator, generates a face, given some, some input or tweak, and does this look like it belongs to our set or not? of real people and when the computer and generator can't differentiate between what's real and what's been generated Mm -hmm. then that passes to the system and so this is a fully generated face of someone that does not exist but in firms now that is where the press is still calling that deep fake and we have everything from puppet master approach where the expressions of an actor can drive the facial expressions of a target video Mm -hmm. Uh, where i mentioned the face swaps We have uh, other puppet master, everybody dance now with a system where it goes beyond faces to full body motion. And an actor could portray movements and drive the body motions of someone on a target video. And and those are the partially synthetic generations where we could augment data with real and all the way through uh, fully synthetic. And all those right now fall under the umbrella of term of deepfake, even though deepfake is a specific algorithm.
0: Recently, I, I guess it hasn't been too recently, but on 60 Minutes, there was an expert. Her name was Nina Schick. And she stated, it is without a doubt that one of the most important revolutions in the future of human communication and perception is deepfake technology. And she compared its significance to the birth of the Internet, which I thought was kind of a huge statement. And generally, when something is that important, you think of the benefits, how it contributes to society. Absolutely. Can we talk about some of the benefits that we see from using these deepfake technologies? I've seen that museums use it to create more interactive art displays, which is really cool. But can you talk about some of the other benefits?
1: There's a multitude, and, and deepfakes or synthetically altered media and generated media to provide a broader umbrella than just deepfakes. It goes beyond faces. It could be voices, text, all kinds of media, video, imagery. And uh, there's some wonderful advances or, or uses for it. One idea is uh, the synthetically uh, modeling and having a generated voice. And this is actually going on in the medical community of uh, ways of modeling patients' voice if they have like a throat cancer or some other debilitating de- disease right? and are losing their voice. It's a way of creating a model of their voice. So when their voice is lost, that is still there and a device can be made similar to Stephen Hawking's vocal uh, device mm-hmm. where it would speak and they would communicate either through keyboard or, or some other technique but it would be that person's voice. Yeah. I, I believe Stephen Hawking was actually presented with the possibility of going that way and having that, that happen. And he decided to stay with his uh, more robotic sounding voice because that became part of his identity. And that, yeah. that was part of him. But it is a way of, of giving people with disease and other injuries a way of having some kind of semblance of, of a normal interaction with folks and, and sounding. You sound like yourself. So that's, yeah. that's a real benefit. Other good uses I see would be, you know, in creativity. I mean, Hollywood has spent many years, equivalent of effort and money, on generating CGI. And if you've ever watched a movie where someone is going through a de-aging process or a younger person of themselves having actors stand in that don't really look like them um, or using CGI to try to de-age someone, and you have this this feeling of uncertainty or uneasiness that doesn't quite look right reaching into the uncanny valley and the synthetically altered media such as deep fakes can be used to take footage of the younger actors themselves and actually place those faces and features on top of the actors performing the work Mm. somewhat similar technique was used in one of the fast and furious movies after paul walker had passed away his brother Mm -hmm. stepped in But his his face was placed on his his brother in in post-production and provided uh, that kind of footage. If you look online at YouTube, there's some groups that have taken snips of videos. The the Irishman comes to mind, where it's a Martin Scorsese movie, and a lot of CGI was used to de-age very recognized named actors, and it wasn't quite right. Uh, And on some YouTube videos... Folks took a deep fake type technologies and modeled footage in older movies of these actors and provided much more compelling and realistic de aging process on the actors. The actors are still acting, it's still their voice, it's still their motion, it's just a younger version of their faces on the actor's body. And it, it provided much more realism from an end viewer's perspective.
0: It's very cool that we're able to do that. It makes it more engaging, I guess. On the other side of that, I want to talk a little bit about how state and non-state actors may use this technology to really affect our U.S. national security. We've seen in the news different uh, leaders, Kim Jong-un, Putin, and most recently Ukrainian President Zelensky. He had a deep fake made where he told his people to go ahead and surrender to Russia, which, I mean, that's kind of huge and monumental. And that actually got reposted by the media a couple of times before it was removed. So there are obvious implications for national security. And I'd like you to speak a little bit about that beyond what we've already seen and, you know, beyond the obvious.
1: Yeah, there's the video got some traction, even though just watching it, it's obvious that it's not right. (laughs) <laughs> uh, from color, from texture, from movement, from position. It just, it, it wasn't a very compelling deep fake as a whole, especially for somebody like like me who looks at this stuff regularly. But it did get traction. When we look at that kind of messaging and that kind of production, you're starting to get into the realm of the, the mis- and disinformation uh, influence campaign type ideas, um, which goes beyond taking a face swap or something like that. It's part of the narrative, the greater narrative. And the synthetically altered media and generated media has been used in other cases. I mean, politicians, I can't recall at the moment, the the country put out an ad speaking multiple languages. And what happened is he was using a, a puppet master type approach. He didn't speak all the languages, but had people record his statement in different languages and then use a poet master approach to lip sync himself to make it look like he was conveying those messages in different languages to the population of the country that he was running for. Wow. The question is, you know, what's the ethics behind this? Right. Could he speak all those languages? Was it deception or some kind of deceitful that he did this? Yeah. It's also would be if he's communicating and somebody is there translating next to him, that would also get the message across. But it wouldn't be as intimate, teams, to have this person speaking those languages. And a good example of that from a commercial use is uh, David Beckham spoke on a public service announcement on the the risks and wanting to defeat malaria Mm. and did so speaking many different languages. Now, the voice was always the voice of the voice actor. It wasn't him. Puppet master approach was used to lip sync him with the narrative that was going on. And the message that if all voices around the world communicate that this is a necessity, then something will be done about it. So many voices, one problem. And that was an interesting message. It was clear he was not speaking those languages, but it was very interesting to see his face move that way and the voices come out.
0: Yeah, that's really cool and something to think about. And there are these biometric implications that if bad actors had enough footage they could access secure locations, uh, which, you know, obviously would be a bit problematic. I also read that Australia and China, well, they had the dispute over a deepfake because allegedly China posted a deepfake of an Australian shol- uh, soldier holding a child at knife point.
1: Yeah, so... That would fit in. The, that was actually more of a produced image okay. than necessarily a fake. They didn't change somebody to make them somebody else. What they did is create a, an image to produce a narrative to make it look like a soldier okay, okay. wearing an Australian uniform was pulling a knife to a child's neck. And that was very much of a disinformation campaign right. where they were trying to elicit a narrative that produced an emotional response negatively against the Australians. And they fabricated a story around that. So this is where we start to get into the blur of this technology as a curiosity, as a fun, as entertainment, as a potential threat, as becoming part of the disinformation narrative and the influence campaigns to drive emotion and responses from targets, I guess you will, or, or right. subjects of right. that an organization or government is trying to influence.
0: Gotcha. Definitely used to sway somebody's opinion. I mean, that's
1: part of it for sure.
0: We have all these implications, you know, political, foreign state. You know, I, I can't see a malicious intention not tied to disinformation. It, it's very
1: purposeful. Yeah, and th- there's uh, techniques and methods that will use uh, GANs and other machine learning AI to, to generate text. You can spin a narrative. With some of the models that are out, GPT-3 and, and some others that that generate some very interesting and compelling, realistic-sounding text, and that can be completely made-up stories. Mm. And and recently over the last uh, year or so, uh, seeing the emergence of more tools where the media can be generated based on a caption or or tagline. Dali is is, is one. Crayon is another one that's based on that, and. Uh, Mid-journey is fascinating. In fact, there's a whole other story around around that one where you type in some tags or a phrase and media imagery will be generated based on the tags and style that you you choose. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's curiosity. But also recently there was a fair where under digital media, an artist won first place. And what he did was generate one of these images. Now he did further take it through through Photoshop or some other image processing tool to modify and enhance it a bit, add a head here and there, do a little bit of tweaking. Right. But for the bulk of the image was synthetically generated uh, using AI. So the question is, at what point is this cheating right. versus an artistic effort by someone? And that has sparked a debate in the creative community as well.
2: I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Shannon Corliss, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Intelligence and Analysis. In this position, she leads up Treasury's intelligence element. Economics sometimes falls into the broad category of global or transnational issues, something that is seen as out of the ordinary for intelligence work. The history of intelligence, however, shows a very different reality. At such a historical remove it, it's easy to forget how central the Soviet Union was to intelligence priorities in the 1950s, especially related to its nuclear capabilities. One of the biggest disputes from that era was the debate over what came to be known as the bomber gap the idea that the Soviet Union's long-range aviation capabilities had gained an advantage over the United States on producing and fielding strategic bombers. There's a long backstory about how the Air Force got to its view of the Soviet bomber fleet, but ultimately the debate came down to CIA's ability to extrapolate military productivity capacity based on its analysis of the Soviet economy. That view prevailed, And the annual CIA assessment of the Soviet economy became one of the most anticipated pieces of analysis every year as the military services used it to compete for appropriations for their preferred weapons systems. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu.
0: Interesting. So that kind of ties me into my next question, what we've been talking about, balance of national security considerations. With free speech protections, you know, creativity, protections guaranteed by the Constitution, we see countries like China who have made very hard statements against deep fake technology. And the purposeful use of it will be, well, they'll come down really hard on it. As you know, under our constitution, we can't do that. So how do we balance keeping the American public safe and at the same time, allowing people to use that technology for?
1: So there's several uh, different approaches, ideas. I was was at at DARPA supporting the media forensics program and later the semantic forensics program is still going on, which asks these exact same questions. And the idea behind Mm -hmm. those programs is to detect manipulated media to include deep fakes, synthetically altered, and synthetically generated media. And the problem is bigger than any agency. It's bigger than any single government. This is a global issue, and in the information is going out. And when we were looking at working on the media forensics program, you know, an article came out, of, I think it was Rolling Stone, talking about censorship. And PM and I, at the time uh, Matthew Turk was very clear we're not trying to censor the internet. What we're trying to do and what's important is educating people and also giving indicators as to is what you see and hear real or has it been altered? And it, it's sort of like if you want to think of it as, as spam. So we all live with junk mail, it comes in all the time, and there are filters. In our email box, that kind of put it aside, you can choose not to put it aside, but there are indicators. And and like with firewall, you have threats coming in and attacks all the time, but it's, it's a virus scanners, firewalls, spam detectors. They're all triggering on indicators that something is going on. And either you can apply a filter or you can alert someone to what's going on. And with virus scanners, it's going to scan your system. It's going to tell you there's a threat. What do you want to do with it? You want to quarantine it? You want to keep it? You want to delete it? And we see the same type thing of detecting of this type of media in informing people that it exists, you need to be aware of it, here are some indicators, and there are some tools available that are being developed and, and continue to be developed throughout the communities, plural, that help journalists or end users and consumers governments identify whether what they're looking at has been altered in some way, and if so, how? And those provide indicators and provide feedback to the education process of letting people know what's going on. Right,
0: right. Interesting. What comes to mind is last season, we talked about conspiracy theories, you know, back to the disinformation angle and cognitive biases. We have like these preconceived notions that if we see an image or an audio clip that kind of fits our narrative are we going to use these detection techniques these tools even if we're educating these folks are are we going to use these tools to identify whether it's fake or not i hope so yeah me too (laughs) but that's not always the case another point i wanted to bring up as far as i mean i'm jumping ahead a little bit to what was coined the liar's dividend right folks can now say that's fake, you know, completely taking their responsibility off the table. So now we kind of have this, is it real or not? But, and I know this has been discussed really heavily on Capitol Hill, former D&I Coates was in on the conversation. It's kind of scary to think about, you know, this is next level stuff that that you can't necessarily believe what you're seeing. Right. Right.
1: You have to dig a little deeper to understand what you're looking at. It's part of it. I'm very pleased with how the detection has been going in the, you know, the DARPA programs and some of the commercial initiatives and, and looking at media authentication and trust. The thing is, say, everything is a fake. However, in addition to detecting whether media has been altered and falsified or, or, or manipulated fake or whatever you want to call it, there's also detectors that mirror those that tell you whether it's real. And even though audio models, acoustic models, voice models can be developed, that a speaker ID system can fail. There's also research going on that says even though the speaker ID says it's this person, here are the indicators that show that it was either synthetically generated or altered versus being human. And, and that's some of the work that also came out of the DARPA metaphor and continues on, I believe, through the Semantic Forensics Program at DARPA under uh, Dr. Will Corby. Machines aren't perfect. The deep fakes technology isn't perfect. And it is a constant cat and mouth game. Technology is going to improve to generate, but also technology is going to improve to detect the semantic inconsistencies that are produced in the different media types. And, I mean, there's only so much that that, uh, systems can do and get right. And so far, there's still a number of indicators that can identify whether we're looking at a human or looking at something that's generated, even when our eyes fail us.
0: That makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit more about what initiatives or progress has been made by DARPA and the U.S. government and the private sector building these detection methods. You know, how mature is the effort? And the second part is that are they able to keep up with the advances that are being made? Maybe in five years, it's no longer going to be in a position to identify that something is fake. Okay, we need to address this issue here, but we also have to be proactive you know, long-term, the, these things are going to come about in the next few years. How do we address that?
1: The advances in technology that make the generated media so also goes to building the detectors and the analytics. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a continued advancement in, in both arms, if you okay. want look at it two separate arms. Talking first about the DARPA programs, the media mm-hmm. forensics program was originally devised to detect whether visual media assets, images and video have been manipulated, altered. That was it. About partway through the program is when deep fakes emerged. It wasn't designed initially to address that. And the question was can we, the government, DARPA, use the analytics that are being developed to detect manipulated images and video to address deep fakes? And the answer was yes, we can. At the time is fun to watch a change of technology. I mean at one point it's like okay Uh, The deep fake eyes don't blink. Well, a week or so later, there was a a synthetically generated avatar that looked human and eyes blink. Okay, check. That one's off. Okay, the voices aren't going to be the same. It's the speaker ID says it's not not a human. Great deep fake video came out of uh, Richard Nixon delivering a speech of the moon disaster crashing into the moon, which an event did not happen. (laughs) The speech was a real speech, but not delivered. And folks at MIT and other research centers developed This fake video, one is educational, but also was the first time it really pulled together the voice actor puppet master over Nixon and using a model of Nixon's voice that sounded like him and had some of his mannerisms. And it, it put everything together, the voice, the face, the body, the motions, the narrative, yet the detectors nailed it. Very very happy with that. Then we're seeing the the text generators and identifying the the consistencies, the inconsistencies of that. People and machines write differently. Now the machines can be modeled, or create models that will uh, emulate a person's style. There are chat bots online that people say, oh, it must be sentient. It's not. It's a canned responses, it's learning responses, and just providing a canned feedback, or it's a generated feedback, but there isn't thinking behind it per se. As the, like I said, it's a cat and mouse game. And as the advances in in generating, creating this media happens, so do the advances in the detection algorithm.
0: Nice. Okay, got it. These advances we're talking about, professionals do detect some of these issues, these abnormalities or in images or audio. But how does someone like me, a person who has no experience, how can I, the average person, look at an image or listen to some audio and know...
1: That there are issues you know with some of the the images uh, stylegan stylegan two and stylegan three, which are generated images, synthetic people if you go to this com those tend to be primarily a stylegan two generated images, and there are some signals I mean there are telltale signs that there's swirls that don't belong here. there's some hair or clothing or ear or background there's, there's a different artifacts are generated we call these the semantic inconsistencies, and this right. is kind of where the semantic forensics program came from from DARPA. And that we know media is manipulated or generated, should we care? And if we care, you know, we need to also identify how it was created and provide those indicators as feedback. it would be great if everybody had a tool for this, right. it'd be great if every news organization had a tool for this. Some of its education this is what to look for. Other kinds, I mean, for example, there's research going on at, at Berkeley, I believe it was also at Albany and uh, University of Buffalo looking at speech as well as muscle movement. Mm-hmm. There are some motions that defy the laws of physics. <laughs> that's a problem. Right. That's a semantic inconsistency. And that's something that the Semaphore program looks for. There's also other organizations that are trying to develop uh, not just detection capabilities, but Indicators to help provide feedback, if you will, on the provenance, development, manipulation, and uh, chain of development, chain of custody, if you will, Mm -hmm. of multimedia. We have the the Content Authenticity Initiative, CAI. There's over 300 organizations globally involved with that that look at provenance and, and attribution, the chain of processing, from capture to end consumer. and being able to understand what has happened along that chain and provide evidence of this is the image you're working with these are the alterations or enhancements or manipulations that have occurred along the way and why mm. and this is the original media that we can we can point back to there's an api available it's open source uh, compatible with the c2pa that's the coalition for content provenance and authenticity
2: mm-hmm. which is
1: also another global organization and it's an open technical standard providing publishers and creators the ability to face the origin of media so if it's been captured what's happened to it and where's the origin it's been generated you got a time zero and then can take it back from there we have other organizations that are trying to provide education to journalists and, and other uh, organizations because can they trust what they are receiving? When they pass along stories, can we trust what's being told? Is it mis- or disinformation? Is it is it, is it a misused image or video footage for a story that doesn't match? It falls under witness.org is an organization that, that really tries to help journalists and people globally and one, providing some education opportunities around that deepfakes, how to spot them, media authenticity. Cool. There's also the partnership on AI that has AI and media integrity project, I believe, where it looks at how AI is being used and how you can identify media that's been uh, modified, manipulated, generated, but also looking at the integrity piece of, of media and, and can we trust what we are observing. So there's a number of initiatives and organizations globally that are trying to address aspects of this. A lot of it comes down to, to education. Unfortunately, people are gonna believe what they believe. And if you want to believe a deep fake, even if there's all these indicators, then you're not gonna change your mind otherwise. Right. That's
0: that's true. So it's very interesting to hear how many organizations are globally interested in doing significant work in this area.
1: It's a global problem.
0: Right. It definitely is. So, so you touched on a couple of things like the provenance of multimedia, where we're posting things, and I want to go back to social media. If there were, you know, okay, on the hill, Facebook and Twitter, other companies have testified saying that they were putting mechanisms in place to help slow the spread of deep fakes. Yeah, you could mark something saying, "Okay, this is authentic" or "It's fake," and you could also mark it with when it was created, so that the origins of whatever it is could be tracked. What extent should we be holding, you know, the Twitters and the Facebooks, <laughs> TikTok, and other social media platforms accountable?
1: That's that, that's a loaded question. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, I didn't even talk about the initiatives and, and things that are going on with, with, you know, Microsoft and Facebook and Google and, and NVIDIA, who is behind GPUs and also Behind some of these um, synthetically generated uh, media capabilities, mm-hmm. it's amazing. I mean, Facebook and Microsoft have had fake challenges, generated media and trying to detect them, um, opening right. up the community, looking for algorithms, adding detectors into to their routines. Some social media platforms will re-encode. I mean, that's, that's a quote manipulation. It is an alteration. But there's compression and there's really changing the message that's being conveyed and the content that's captured or represented. Mm-hmm. And trying to differentiate that, and, and you know why it matters. And social media platforms are concerned about one that type of media representation, but also being used a, as a platform. There's there's a lot of false accounts, independent on whether the avatars or persona on them are generated, synthetic, or, or otherwise. That trying to wrap their heads around and and, and control that as well. But I'm not gonna, I'm not going to answer the question of what should they do. I I am speaking okay. for me. I'm not speaking on behalf of NIU or, or the organization <laughs> that I work for or have represented in the past. I have, these are all my own opinions.
0: <laughs> yes, and we will say that at the beginning of this podcast, and I'd like to put this disclaimer out there right now again.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to put you on the spot. So... As we're coming to finish up today, I want to get any last thoughts you may have about, you know, deep fake technologies or synthetic media in general. What should people know? I think sometimes our conversations get into a little doomsday-ish. There are these worst case scenarios, but obviously there are benefits. How can we use these technologies in an ethical way that supports creativity and supports free speech in a responsible way?
1: It's an interesting world of creativity that we're in. And with the emergence of, of, of GPUs, I mean, they did a couple things. In 2012 and beyond, it gave us a tremendous amount of, of increase in, in compute power. You know, blockchain mining, crypto mining really took off with that because you could process so much more data. But the GPUs, I mean, graphical processing unit it was for doing the mathematical computation to provide better modeling and better representation of data that we see on the screen and taking advantage of the compute resources and power these things provide we're able to take a lot more data Mm -hmm. and build models based on those in a shorter period of time which really gave a boost to the machine learning and artificial intelligence research and um, if we go back, I wish I had some graphics with me. If we go back to the 2000, I think, 12 to 14 range, when we're looking at early versions of what is considered synthetic face, if you look at it, it's like, yeah, it's horrible. But it's what were. It's it's what the discriminator and generator couldn't separate being, is this, is this a real face or not? And it thought, okay, well, based on data I know and how I've learned, it looks like it fits in a real category. But to human eye, it's like, eh, no, I don't like it. But now push forward to, to StyleGAN3 and, and there's a 3D version and there's, and there's a continuing evolution of these products or algorithms being developed. And it's becoming more and more realistic from a human sensing perspective. From a gaming, creating games and more realism and immersive environments like that, a virtual reality environment, immersive experiences, creating fantastical art. I think it, it's it's a tool. And how is that tool being used? So if we go step back to the predecessors of where we are now, at the film and darkroom time, look at the Stalin era where he ha- had people that would airbrush and do darkroom tricks and, and literal old school photoshopping to remove people and objects from his imagery, his, his photos wow. to rewrite or attempt to rewrite history. The idea behind malicious use of that is always gonna be there, but it's photography is a tool. It's an artistic medium. It's a way to document events. It's a way to capture history. And in some cases, it's a way to try to manipulate and, and change emotion and perception of events. So this is where we are, I think, with the whole synthetically generated media or synthetically altered media to include the realm of deep fakes is that these are tools. Uh, There's some entertainment value. There's some medical value. There's some creativity value. There's some free speech stuff, but there's also taking a tool and using it for malintent. I mean, a, a hammer is a tool. If I beat someone to death with a hammer, It makes me a bad person. It doesn't mean the hammer is a bad tool. I'm just using it for a bad purpose.
0: (laughs) We (laughs) don't want to encourage violence with a hammer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that is interesting. (laughs) We've seen these issues consistently. And like you mentioned, Stalin rewrote history or attempted to.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And if we... And unfortunately, a lot of the victims of deep fake like technology are, are women and being sexualized without their consent, or without their knowledge. And it's in some places it's a crime, in some places it isn't. And trying to get the narrative around that and address that as an invasive behavior, where do you cross the line of, oh, this is my freedom of speech? versus you're, you're harassing and and being abusive to someone at where, what point do your freedoms and their freedoms you know cross or end
0: right and i think it goes back to the whole legislation thing how much how much is too much and i'm glad i don't have to make those decisions because right. yeah well
1: if criminal if criminals do criminal things and you know there's laws to address criminals and if it's not a crime how is that determined? I mean, like you said, China, if they have rules against deep fakes type of technology, I think the rules mostly apply to if it targets them versus if they use it to target someone else.
0: Yeah. I think they have to like specifically say, this is a fake image or this is a fake.
1: Well, they certainly did not do that with the Australian soldier event.
0: No, they did not. I mean, it's really interesting discussion, and it's interesting how far technology has evolved and is constantly evolving. It's exciting. <laughs> it, it is. Thank you, Dr. Neil Johnson, for speaking with me today. I'm excited to see what's next.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed this. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.